That's Mock Orange and their song, World of Machines. You know who has a lot of machines? The Pentagon. And if you play your cards right, the friendly and inclusive folks at the Pentagon will let you use their billion-dollar toys in your very own movie. All you have to do is give them your script, follow all their orders to change it to their liking, and then they'll hook you up. What a country. This is American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today we are going to be talking with Dr. Matthew Alford over in London. Alford is the co-author with Tom Secker of National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. Along with T.J. Coles, he is also co-author of Union Jackboot, what your media and professors don't tell you about British foreign policy, as well as the author of The Writer with No Hands, a book I hope to discuss on a future episode. Matthew Alford is one of the co-producers of the soon-to-be-released documentary film, Theaters of War. Today we are discussing this film and its main subject, which is the role of the Pentagon and CIA in the entertainment world. Dr. Matthew Alford, it's great to be here with you today. Lovely to see you, Aaron. So you are a producer of the new Theaters of War documentary that's coming out, is that correct? Yeah, myself uh, and Tom Secker are co-producers. Then there's the executive producer, who's uh, Roger Stahl, who's based in Atlanta. Yeah, and this is based on other work that you've done in the past. I think you've written at least one book on the subject, or is it two books now, on the issue of uh, propaganda that's smuggled into Hollywood films and, and such? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, well, I did a, a, a postgraduate study uh, on... Noam Chomsky uh, and applying his ideas to uh, Hollywood. Uh, and then I did a book out of that called Real Power, R-E-E-L Power, um, in 2010 with a proper publisher called Pluto in Britain. Um, but then I did, uh, I followed that up with more archival work um, in 2017 uh, with a book with uh, 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 that I wrote with uh, Tom Secker uh, called National Security Cinema. Um, and then I have done one or two other things other, aside from that that aren't um, quite as directly related to Hollywood, but are very much to do with um, propaganda and um, uh, political communication. Um, for instance, a book about uh, British foreign policy called uh, Union Jackboot. Union Jackboot. Yeah, that sounds about that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I like Union, Union Jackboot. That was the book that sold the least. Uh, by a long chalk. So that's why I always mention it, to see if anyone might actually buy the damn thing. <laughs> I mean, Britain's foreign policy, it's, uh, I see the US in many ways as a bigger, I don't want to say bigger, better, but a, a, a more powerful version of the of the British. We pretty much copied their whole, I was saying, we don't call ourselves an empire. I guess that's one innovation is that the, the British mm -hmm. empire pretended it was an empire for uh, you know, for for good causes, and then the the U.S. empire is just says straight up says it's not an empire. We're, we're here to help lead you. Yeah. 
So that's really Self something. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain um, what, how you apply Chomsky's, can you sort of summarize how you would apply the propaganda model to these questions of, um, you know, artistic manipulation, as in the case of cinema? Uh, it's not too difficult to apply Chomsky's uh, uh, sort of theory or model. It's it's fairly straightforward. It's just saying that uh, that media, uh, and in his case, news media, uh, de-radicalizes, um, waters down uh, the uh, the news for a series of pretty obvious reasons: the prevalence of advertising, the reliance of journalists on um, on government sources and official sources, um, and the concentration of ownership. Um, by big um, corporations who have got really no interest in uh, in seeing uh, uh, independent voices um, uh, become more prominent, uh, and also the the power of um, all of those people to or, and organisations to to stop uh, uh, to, to stop any um, critical uh, speech emerging. So you know those are the, um, the the main things that the that the model says, and that's you know sort of accounts for the fact that you don't you know that basically it just explains how there is a mainstream. It gives an idea of what the mainstream is and how that comes about, um, and you can do exactly the same thing by applying those ideas to Hollywood. Is there a concentration of own, of ownership? Absolutely, there is. There's half a dozen studios that dominate everything. They're all they're all owned by large parent companies. Sometimes they've got those parent companies have got links with arms industry and stuff like that. Uh, you've got the prevalence of advertising. That means that um, you know no advertiser wants to have any r- radical message um, uh, portrayed on uh, on screen or uh, in print of any kind, really, because it interferes with the buying mood. Uh, and you've got um, uh, and you, you you tend to have uh, government. Uh, well, the, one of the, the one of the reasons that I moved on to this was because that third filter of the Chomsky propaganda model is is termed sources. So it's the idea um, the, the um, uh, they posit that the um, that the government is an important source of information. Now it's obvious that the government is an important source of information for the news because whenever there's a news report, it's you know likely it's going to be about the government. In some way or another. So, what's the journalist going to do? Well, they're kind of doing the right thing. They're going to go to the government to ask for a comment. So that's why, even in a very critical news report, you're always going to have the response of the government. So the vast majority of the article is going to be from the government or the state perspective, um, anyway. Now, with Hollywood, what was interesting about it was that um, at least, uh, you know, really throughout the 20th century and into the early part of the 21st century. It was just assumed that really the government couldn't and didn't do anything uh, in in Hollywood, um, uh, and and what my work has been with our group of researchers over the past um, fifteen or twenty years, but particularly over the past um, sort of five or six years, uh, has ha- has shown is that not only does the government have a huge impact upon uh, Hollywood content. Um, but it is actually some of the most controversial and militarized elements of the government that do that. It's not really the White House that that does it, although that occasionally has happened. But it is actually the Pentagon and the CIA that has huge influence. So that third filter, that third factor that Chomsky talks about, um, about the importance of, of government sources, of official sources, is 
quite contrary to um, to uh, to thinking even even less than a generation ago uh, is actually an extremely important aspect of um, of the way that uh, that the entertainment industry is uh, is set up both for network television and that's particularly over the past 20 years um, because of the um, the development of uh, satellite TV the burgeoning of channels um, and the willingness of the uh, Pentagon to get involved in um, all sorts of different reality TV shows, which happened in the around about 2000, from around about 2005. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, so, so for all of those reasons, uh, but but also of course in in films as well. But um, you know that's it's almost obvious. I think many more people know that now that um, that the the Pentagon is very much involved in um, in Hollywood filmmaking. Um, but the figures we've got are just, are, are just, you know, really startling. So when you're, this is, this Pentagon aspect is interesting and the access to, um, the access analogy from the propaganda model to the Hollywood, you know, for the news media versus Hollywood is interesting because what is it that the access in, in, in the case of Hollywood really provides? Like, why why is this access so important for these films? Well, it's important because uh, it's really hard, even with CGI, for uh, for filmmakers to make realistic looking things like helicopters and um, uh, you know it's hard to fake a fake a series of soldiers as extras. It's um, you can't, it's really hard to fake an aircraft carrier uh, and all sorts of other um, uh, uh, military materiel. Um, so they need it, really. But they also quite like it. It's not that they're desperate for it. They could make films without it, and they should, um, but they don't because they uh, because it's convenient and you know no one really loses out. They get to um, uh, get advice from their military people. They're able to. They're sometimes able to sell the film on the grounds that it's you know got all this realism. You know, we train with the Marines and <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, so it means that we're like that. And uh, so, generally speaking, the only people who are going to lose out from that are uh, are the audience uh, uh, who who will who will lose a sense of. Um, uh, well, I mean, they're being they're being spun a yarn really by uh, uh, by the military. So how far does this go back in the U.S. case? I mean, I know that there was um, uh, the, there was the novel The Quiet American by Graham Greene, who was British, and then they made a film version of it. But then, I, as I understand it, Edward Lansdale was involved, who was a CIA guy, but also t- had a military rank too. So he's, But he was probably there in a CIA capacity. And... He was actually a person who Graham Greene kind of denied it, and I don't think it was a straight one-to-one thing, but the character in The Quiet American seems to be based on Lansdale and events that Lansdale was involved in, like the like bombings that were staged to look like they were communist bombings. And then he's there messing with the Hollywood version, which they end up kind of neutering it, surprise, surprise, and, and t- sort of taking away the uh, most damning aspects of it in the end. So are there a lot of do you know a lot of things from the fifties and sixties that they were involved in, or is that area still sort of um, a black hole by and large, minus a few exceptions? Uh, well, actually the 1940s, 50s, uh, 1940s and fifties are really, really interesting. Um, and if you'd asked me that question, when I wrote the book in 2017, I'd have had it on the tip of my tongue um, because it was, I thought one of the most interesting aspects of, of it all, even though it's historical, uh, you know, going back, 
um, 60 or 70 years, um, I thought it was really fascinating because the historiography, the, the, the books that had actually been written about that, the historiography on the 40s and 50s suggested that the CIA was, uh, quote, an absent presence um, in Hollywood. In other words, it was there. It kind of was keeping tabs on things, but it didn't do anything. Um, but actually, we re- well, Tom primarily as the, the main person receiving Freedom of Information Act requests uh, and original documentation, we really, really picked through that. Um, and we found all sorts of things that were happening in the 40s and 50s uh, that indicated that the CIA was actually quite active. I mean, they, they weren't anything like as active as they are, as they have been since the mid 1990s, um, when they've had an official presence uh, in Hollywood. But um, you are, you know, you're completely correct. Uh, for what we found on, on Edward Lansdale, for example, was that he had been involved in uh, rewriting the ending to that film to ensure that the um, uh, the plastic explosives um, that were supp- that were being supplied by the United States were actually plastic toys that they were doling out to um, to local children, um, you know, and so that the the, uh, uh, the the main character has obviously just made a mistake and assumed that the Americans are baddies, but then they're not. You know? So, um, and Lansdale was involved in that. And we, we, we carefully pick apart the, the, um, the documentary evidence to show that, but lots of other cases too. In fact, the, the very existence of the CIA, um, uh, its forerunner, the OSS, uh, there were three films made in 1946. Uh, and those films were very uh, pro OSS and they laid the media foundation the the uh, the the, um, the the groundwork for the existence of the CIA now even the um, the historian who uh, who is most conservative about the uh, about what the CIA did in Hollywood in that period he nevertheless put out a press release as part of his um, uh, promotion for his own book a few years ago, said, you know, without these films, the CIA might not have even have actually actually have existed because it just wouldn't have had, you know, the, the mediated rollout. So there's all sorts, there's all sorts going on there. And I know, of course, the probably the other exa- classic example you probably know about is um, 1984, which had a, a changed ending to be more sympath- uh, more anti-communist, and also and also the um, the ending and other aspects of the um, the cartoon film Animal Farm, um, and various other things that were going on there. Um, indeed, even um, uh, even up to the early 1960s, uh, like there was, there's never been any indication that Doctor No, for example, had been um, supported by the CIA, but we were able to find evidence that, that they'd provided equipment. Um, some of the gadgets had been provided by um, by the Central Intelligence Agency, um, and we we're also able to find um, uh, North by Northwest. The Hitchcock film was the first time actually that the CIA was even um, was even mentioned um, in uh, in a Hollywood script because they had been quite. Uh, not quite effective, extremely effective at ensuring that their very name, the idea of an American intelligence service, was actually omitted from um, from any film that might be threatening to even to even suggest it. And this was 1959, so this is a good 12 years um, after the creation of the CIA. And in fact, even in I think it is in North by Northwest. I think I think we've got the picture in our book where, where um, Hitchcock has the uh, the sign that says. Um, 
that uh, leads into a building. And I think it just says intelligence agency and he's deliberately cut off the central bit. I think that's probably, I guess that's Hitchcock just being a bit coy and funny. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you're still looking well, well over a decade um, before um, Hollywood is even able to mention the CIA. I, I think that the stuff from the 40s and 50s, um, if people are into it, um, I'm I'm really proud of that part of the of national security cinema. Um, the the material in the uh, and and please do read that. You probably get it. You might well be able to read that for free online. To be honest with you, if you uh, if you look around at the um, look inside function in the in the books. But um, but the the new film, the new our new documentary film, Theatres of War, is a bit less historical than that, and it's more about what's been happening over the uh, past twenty years. Although there is still a historical angle, but we really go quite in, into detail uh, 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 on the Quiet American and those cases that you allude to. In the, sorry, yeah. In the yeah, I find that one fascinating because um, of the Lansdale angle to the Kennedy assassination. You know, he's depicted yeah. obliquely in JFK, and um, he was Dan Ellsberg's um, superior in Vietnam. And and added, I was able to spend about a better part of a week with with Dan Ellsberg, um, driving, picking him up at the airport, and driving him around to a couple of different things. And I did an event with him, and he was at dinner with my wife. And my wife teaches the Quiet American, and they got into an argument over whether nah. Lansdale was the inspiration for Pyle. And she said, she said yes, he was, but because of his involvement in these bombings, but that like he wasn't, you know, he was obviously lower level. And Dan was was more. I, I don't want to say he was trying to defend Lansdale exactly, but in a way, he kind of was in in that particular instance. But elsewhere, I've heard him say that uh, I've read that he said. Um, he's that, that it's possible that he may have you know been involved in Dallas and all this stuff so so that case really fascinates me now there's a lot of stuff in the new theaters of war documentary which I'd really recommend people watch that covers these movies that you're where you're it deals more with the Pentagon thing and to be honest I I, I and it's very interesting fascinating stuff the CIA stuff is more tantalizing I think because you come to the conclusion that you you don't really know what it is. And then you also mentioned that it seems to be done informally and over the phone. And I write a bit in my uh, book that's American exception that's coming out. I have a section on secrecy, levels of secrecy, and the fact that like at a certain level, many things are transmitted only verbally. And so this is a real conundrum for even thinking that you're ever going to be able to answer the most sensitive questions about national security, because it seems like there is, at a certain level, the most secretive things are handled verbally, you know. Um, and so with this this Hollywood stuff, that seems to be more – I'm not saying that's the most sensitive thing in the world, but that it's handled in such a way that you don't know it because I see that stuff I, – I, it goes beyond ideology sometimes, but maybe we can, we can come back to that. One of the guys that I that it features as a villain, I guess, of sorts, uh, you know, and even though he doesn't seem very sinister, his slickness is maybe part of what makes him villainous, is Phil Strub. So who is this Phil Strub character? And uh, why is it why should we know who he is and be worried about what he's up to all the time? Well, uh, Phil Strub is the uh, or was until very recently um, the uh, Pentagon's uh, Hollywood liaison um, official, and so he was uh, some. You know, he's basically in charge of uh, the Pentagon's role uh, in Hollywood, and so he's the 
usually the, the the sort of go-between guy for everything that involve uh, that's to do with what the Pentagon does uh, in the entertainment industry. Um, Strub worked for uh, in that role since the mid '80s. He did have a predecessor who had worked for a, a couple of decades or so as well. Um, and so this is, you know, kind of looking at, a, you know, part of the deep state, if you like, you know, it's, it's the bureaucracy that uh, that gains a lot of power. It was interesting, Strub talked about um, his role a few years ago, and he said um, uh, he was trying to claim that he wasn't at all powerful. He said he was like a, um, uh, a, a, a eunuch in the court of imperial China. <laughs> um, that's how he uh, uh, saw his... Uh, his role in Hollywood, with uh, obviously Hollywood being the equivalent of Imperial China, um, and him being a eunuch. I don't know. Perhaps there's a. If he was thinking there about the uh, eunuchs used to be there in the court for entertainment value, didn't they? Um, well, like, yes. if, if you study Chinese history, the eunuchs are some of the w- worst and most conspiratorial actors. <laughs> they bring down whole dynasties. So. That's a very strange comment from him, uh, and he, but it's cre- it's also creepy. So uh, it's that's perfect. Yes, it is very creepy, and yeah, I, I will look into these Chinese uh, dynasties. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, there's time. To- there's times where, like, for you know, months at a time, you can't get into the palace because the eunuchs are conspiring, and you don't even it, it's you, something and bad stuff is afoot. So you just stay clear of the palace. I remember my Chinese mm. professor, history professor, telling me that it's really fascinating stuff. But it's also weird because he has kind of a light kind of de- demeanor to him as well. Yeah, yeah. So it, that is just a, the weirdest, creepiest analogy. But um. He was there. He, he's there talking about some of these things that they don't want to show. I, I believe at one point he's talking about like it's either in this. I'm pretty sure it's in this film. I've seen a few things with him in them. So they, um, another one, another another older shorter documentary featuring you with Phil Strub. But he actually talks about the things they don't want to show. And you guys mentioned this in the movie too. What are the things that Hollywood will will say because they won't approve somebody's script. I mean, they'll say, okay, we'll let you use our aircraft carrier and our battleship and we'll blow some things up if you let us, you know, look at your entire script. But what, so what are the things that they are, that are red flags for them? Uh, yeah, they, they, uh, they call them showstoppers uh, rather than red flags, showstoppers. Um, and they are things like, they are basically anything that shows the American government and American military in a bad light. Um, and in fact, if you go down through the small print of what their uh, contracts and official documentation says, they do say um, anything that, well, basically anything that isn't authentic, but also anything that um, that is uh, critical of the U.S. government. They cover themselves. They can basically do whatever they want um, according to their own um, their own documentation. Showstoppers include things like um, uh, it might be uh, drug use amongst military personnel. Um, it might be military personnel behaving badly in any way. Um, it might be something that is critical of uh, of uh, American foreign policy. Um, it's often it, it, it may, may be things like depiction of UFOs, particularly in the past. Um, you know, all, all sorts of things. Anything that shows the military in a bad light uh, that you know that indicates that American foreign policy is malevolent in any way. Um, uh, fragging the killing of uh, of officers um, by um, 
by other military personnel. It, it, it's basically, anything you could possibly think of uh, that would portray the military badly, they reserve the right to um, to excise from uh, from movies, and they're pretty rigorous about that. Yeah, the inauthenticity part is. Um, I mean, that's of course farcical. It is farcical uh, because, and it's particularly farcical when you know they've uh, they've provided full cooperation to the Transformers franchise, um, you know, which is the most ridiculous. You know, it's, there's no authenticity in whatever the health Transformers is. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really quite understand even what's going on after 40 years of watching this trash. Um, but it's certainly not authentic. No, I grew up with that, um, the Transformers. I, I think it was Christmas when I was in second grade. I just wanted as many Transformers as I could possibly have. <clears throat> but those new movies are weird, and the military presence in them, there is a lot of military stuff in it, so it doesn't surprise me yeah, too much. Yeah, a lot of military presence and a lot of um, uh, uh, General Motors as well. Um, you know, the, the, they're one of the major uh, sponsors behind behind them. That's why, why the whole, all of those films look like huge, long car adverts, um, because they are huge, long car adverts and huge, long adverts for the, for the US militaries. So if the Transformers are authentic, according to the calculus of the, of the Pentagon, 13 days that film with kevin costner mm. what was, that was inauthentic why was that inauthentic or why was that bad why didn't, didn't, weren't they not the, the hell that i mean that that is a that, i know you're asking it rhetorically really but that is a question to ask the uh to ask the pentagon because it's it's, it's clear that they couldn't care less about authenticity um but to 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 expand upon your your point um uh Listeners will may well know that Thirteen Days was actually a really very good film. I, I I suspect that you enjoyed that one. It was based on the Kennedy tapes, so it was um it was all very authentic, and it was about the Cuban Missile Crisis from 1962, and it but it depicted the uh, the military Joint Chiefs of Staff as being belligerent, and it indicated that if um if Kennedy had followed their advice, then we would have had a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, the producers of that film, uh, working with Kevin Costner said, you know, do you want to help us on this? They, they were going along with it initially. And then they said, no, you, you can't do that. And I mean, it, it, I, I seem to remember that the, um, that the, the producers did actually send them, you know, send to the, to the, uh, to the Pentagon office, um, you know, here is the documentation that shows what happened there. Here's what happened with the uh, with the uh, the spy plane being shot down over uh, uh, over communist airspace. Here's what you know. Here are all these things that that happened that you're denying happened. Um, and here's the tapes of it. And they just didn't get a reply in the end because they're not interested in in, in that. Uh, but you know, that was a really really good film um, and a very good uh, historical um, record. And, and you know, what one of those films I. I I guess I'd recommend really um, uh, to be, I try not to recommend films too much because I don't want to be a complete sort of uh, entertainment nerd, but I, but I, you know, if you're interested in history, then that is a really good one to go to. And, it, and it's a great example of, of what the Pentagon will not engage with. There are other examples as well. Though. I mean, for example, a really good case would be um, there was a film in the mid nineties called fields of fire. Um, it was actually, a, it was a book um, uh, and it was about, 
Um, it was about the um, US experience in Vietnam. Um, and it was written by uh, the Secretary of the Navy. Um, it was a classic text at the Marines. The Marines wanted it to be made into a film. Um, everyone was behind it. It was, you know, it was a warning about, you know, uh, about what can happen in a uh, uh, in an armed conflict and how that um, uh, how that war in Vietnam escalated, um, and it, it, it included uh, images of uh, villages being torched and uh, again fragging things like that. Um, and the only people who opposed that, the military supported the idea of that film being made, but it was the PR people who said no. The PR people effectively trumped the Secretary of the Navy, someone who just finished being Secretary of the Navy, uh, Jim Webb, um, and they trumped the, 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 the rest of the military. Um, Wasn't uh, it his uh, book? Wasn't it Jim Webb's book? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a classic. It's used, it's used as part of, the, uh, part, part of military training. And but, he went on to become a senator, and, and yeah, he was not yeah. a not, he was not an unpowerful person. No, he was a proper powerful person, and not even you know I'm not defending uh, you know the that you know the military brass. I'm just saying it's pretty obvious. Like even the mainstream people, even the people at the center of power, wanted that film to be made. It already been made into a book. It was a hugely successful uh, and important book, but the, the just that's an indication of how uh, of how influential the um the pr people are within that institution this is a sort of maybe a not an, an aside here but you know lansdale himself was a pr guy before he went into the to the oss um you know in army intelligence and so on and then after that was was cia but like so there's it seems like there is a good affinity between these people the this the, the propaganda industry or the pr industry as it's as it's propagandistically, you know, re rebranded or whatever, right? And then you you have like your biggest sickos in the in the CIA would be a natural. It's like, oh yeah, let's draw from the ad, the pool of advertising because there we're going to find some really twisted people. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I guess I mean in, intelligence and political communication are kind of two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Um, uh, the, you know, you can acquire intelligence, but you know, if you're going to use that, then you need to find ways to to spin it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, apart from the the actual military fighting on the ground aspect of what these institutions do, I mean, it's pretty obvious that what a lot, you know, what they spend a lot of their time doing is is finding ways to justify um, their uh, the, their activity as institutions. You know, it's, and it's so obvious, but you know, any institution has to has to continue to exist. Um, and if it doesn't, if it, and and it's going to be very easy for a, a controversial institution um, like the Pentagon or uh, CIA to uh, to be destroyed pretty quickly if it doesn't have its PR game on um, uh, on point. I mean, I think that's one of the things, one of the reasons that they've done so much as well since the um, since the late eighties. Um, both the CIA and uh, and Pentagon have been particularly um, uh, 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 particularly active. And I think it's because they realised that with the end of the Cold War, there was a threat to their budgets, uh, or indeed even potentially a threat to their existence. Um, I think the CIA felt that um, that pinch in particular because there were, um, there were one or two senators in the uh, early 90s who were saying, you know, do we need this? Um, is it just causing more problems than it's worth? Um, and so I think that's when the they really ramped up their, their uh, PR operations. 
um, and they've continued to do so. I mean, I, and also I think, I mean, I'm not defending the US foreign policy in the Cold War uh, either, because you know that was as, as murderous as anything, um, uh, and even more so at points. But, you know, it was easier to sell the idea of a communist enemy. At least the communist enemy actually existed. At least it had an address in Moscow. Um, so it, it made it, it, there was a, a it was easier to um, uh, to rationalize American foreign policy at that time. I mean, since then, I mean, I, I don't want to sound too complacent, but, you know, there are there aren't really threats to the to the Western world. You know, Russia is not a threat to the Western world. I know we keep getting told it is and then it, nothing happens whatsoever. Um, but- People don't know that. People forget that every that most everything that they point out ends up to fall apart. I mean. They, Americans haven't Americans haven't dealt with Russiagate. The Screeple poisoning is very yeah. weird. Yeah, I mean, well, R- Russiagate's a clearer example, isn't it? Um, that than the, the, the Skripal one is also really interesting, of course. But that whole narrative that has fallen apart. But we've been sold these scare stories about these different countries time and time again. Whether it's uh, Russia or um, North Korea or Iraq or whatever it is. Um, and uh, but that's that's been going on for you know in in the case of of, of uh, Russia that's been going on for over a hundred years. So it's like c- come on, like when when are we going to wake up as a populace and recognise that it's just the same pattern again? And then they weren't really a threat at all. Anyway, that's slightly off the point. But the, but my point is that I think there was a there was a, a worry um, in the uh, late eighties, early nineties that there was this. Um, uh, that there wasn't so much of a need, um, you know, there was meant to be a peace dividend. And I think that's a really key point, uh, a really key, key time um, in international relations. Um, there was meant to be a peace dividend, and then there wasn't really a peace dividend um, because it was replaced by these um, by these other, other threats. But m- those threats really were, were more manufactured than even the, uh, than even the communist threat was um, in, the, uh, in the preceding 40 years. But as part of that, these institutions became more aware of their need for PR. I mean, I think they'd always known since the 1920s um, and, you know, the early pioneers of, of, uh, of, of the PR industry had, had made people, had made institutions aware of, of the importance of all that, um, particularly in the wake of the Russian Revolution. But I think that they, um, I think there was a renewed recognition of, of the importance of that. And that's, of course, continued to, to, to scale up um, in the era of social media as well. That's what, you know, like the CIA went on Twitter, didn't they? Whatever it was, about five or six years ago, and said, you know, said some twee comment like that. Everyone said, "Ha ha ha! How funny!" Like we can n- neither confirm nor deny that this is the CIA's Twitter page. <laughs> After the Cold War ends, you get the you get there's a, t- a period of time where they're sort of um, listing around trying to get you know there's various national security things, but they're a little silly. A lot of the, that's when humanitarian. It's like, is it going to be humanitarianism because of Yugoslavia? But then you look into Yugoslavia more, and the U.S. really did a lot to manipulate all of that and bring about all of that chaos with. Um, you know, find economic warfare and then also promoting mm. all those separatist parties. And then it, the more so, the more obvious one is the war on terror, where 
really starting in like starting right with the fall of the Soviet Union, one of the earlier operations in in the former Soviet uh, republics is the U.S. sending in jihadis to Azerbaijan, and they they more or less get a beach hold there. And then there's operations involving those jihadis in like Bosnia, um, mm. and then they try to assassinate MI6. This is a scandal, you know, Annie Michon and um, her partner at the time, uh, David something, his name. I, I can't David Shaler. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've, I've spoken to David Shaler a little bit. He's uh, quite yeah. amusing. Guy. <laughs> yeah, they, well, they blew the whistle on this Libya assassination plot yeah. where it was like, oh, yeah, and it did happen. There were people blown up and British intelligence was using Al Qaeda to try to kill Gaddafi. And then all of a sudden 9-11 happens and then Kosovo, the U.S. is in Kosovo too with Al-Qaeda and the KLA. Um, yeah. Mohammed al-Zawahiri is on the same side as the United States over there in 1998 and 99. And then you have 9-11, which is, oh, who are these guys? Surprise. <laughs> they surprised us with this attack. And, yeah. and we were caught with our pants down. And boy, now America's, now the the the, the eagle is waking up or whatever. But it was, you know, and, and okay, you get those two 9-11 wars. Those are really tragic. And then under Obama, we're back to like using Al-Qaeda again in Libya and Syria and mm. and probably in Xinjiang too, you know, if you really want to break down what happens there. I mean, it's, so is, this is where this propaganda that you're, that you're pointing out here that just um, we're surrounded by all the time. And the thing is, there's, there's a spectrum in the U.S. of like, Really, the mainstream and, and alternative media, but is is mostly they differ. I mean, even the like leftmost network was RussiaGate Mania in the United States. Yeah. Like that's yeah. So the, the the issue is that there's no real voice saying you know because it, it looked at at the whole. If you're looking at it from a you know radical anti-imperialist perspective, it's it, you can you can talk about this stuff endlessly and how absurd it is. Uh, uh, you know, on the whole, and you know, that's kind of, I guess what I'm, what I do with my, my podcast. Right. But like it, in terms of the mainstream, there's no voice that's really allowed much of a platform to even talk about this. Whereas they will give, they will lavish the use of, you know, billion dollar aircraft carriers and so on to, to movie people to like fill people's heads with this, with this stuff. It's, I mean, what are, what are some, what are the other more, uh, let's say subtle influences that you that you have noticed at least as far as the Pentagon goes. I mean, because it does seem to be around us all the time, and there's no voice in opposition to it. What what are how, how is it even worse than that? I mean, what are some of these cases where it's like you wouldn't even think the Pentagon was involved in it, and they are? Uh, well, uh, the most obvious one would be uh, that they, uh, as Roger puts it, they've moved into cakes. <laughs> that's the executive producer who always says they've moved into cakes. That's the thing that always surprises me most. Um, there are a lot of cookery programs on um, that have been supported by the uh, by the Pentagon and also by the uh, some by the CIA as well. Um, so, for instance, you I, I can't remember all the titles of them because they're like these sort of crazy, cheesy American daytime TV um, cookery shows. Um, but like, you know, th- there's lots of things with kind of. Uh, uh, like a huge cake, a huge tank made out of cake, for example, and they make that. Is it like easy to make TV and it looks nice and it's easy to watch? And those things are all, um, you know, all done with military backing. Anything that's got a, a reunion between a, a service uh, personnel and their partner, 
is you know that's uh, arranged by the the military anything involving dogs um that's always a good one as well uh, uh, uh like uh, if there's been a dog that sniffed out bombs or something like that um in uh, in harm's way can then be reunited with their trainer or whatever it is these kind of tropes keep coming back again and again on sort of easy to make daytime tv and it's just all kind of like vaguely kind of feel good easy to watch pro-military uh just content you know jay leno riding around in a uh, uh, in a uh, in, in a military vehicle all this kind of all this kind of thing um so though that kind of daytime tv um sort of filler um, is one of the reasons that there's been such an escalation in the number of hours that have been um, supported by the Pentagon. Um, so th- that's quite a surprising element to it. That's only really happened in the past 15 years. Because previously, the, in the 20th century, they were only really working on feature films. That's pretty much all they did. Um, bit of TV. You know, I think they worked on Lassie in the 1950s <laughs> um, and a few things like that. But it was pretty much just features um, until around about 2005. Um, and then other surprising things. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, one of the things I was uh, think is quite, not surprising, but just kind of notable is um, how careful they are about the way that they represent nuclear weapons, for example. Um, so anytime that any film shows any indication that nuclear weapons might be dangerous, <laughs> um, insecure, um, more violent than the military, more, more damaging than the military would want them to be. Um, uh, you know, they really take uh, uh, serious efforts to try and um, to try and change that. Um, so, for instance, the uh, Terminator film, uh, Terminator Salvation, for example, um, you know, they, they worked on that film and it's got lots of nuclear explosions in it that don't really seem to have any effect on anyone. Um, uh, anything that indicates that uh, a nuclear weapon might be stolen, like Broken Arrow, that movie with uh, Christian Slater from the mid-90s, Crimson Tide, uh, Mutiny um, on, a, uh, on a submarine, uh, Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington, um, the film War Games, the Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, you know, all- Which one was Tomorrow Never Dies? Uh, I think it was the one with uh, Elliot Carver, wasn't it? The uh, okay. the media one and Britain and Britain versus China uh, uh, potential war. Um, okay. was, I think I think in that I'm, I'm trying to remember the details on that one, um, but there were things like um, I remember that they. Uh, uh, this has been a case that we have actually known for quite a long time. I, I should point out that when when Tom, when Tom and I wrote that book in 2017. We knew quite a lot of of things by then. We'd had the real motherload of of data had come in, um, but it was at that point that Roger Stahl um, took over and began the filmmaking process. Um, and because he was um, making, he's been making the film since around about then, around about two thousand and eighteen. But because he's a professor of uh, whatever it is. Uh, I can't remember, uh, political communication, I think. Because he's a professor, um, he basically did a research project alongside making the film. And that's quite unusual. Usually, you know, if you almost any film, even a decent documentary, you know, the research is done first and then they will make the uh, make the project. But he was um, doing two things at the same time. He was making a, a really good film at the same time as, as, as looking into, uh, uh, you know, 
spending all, you know, I don't think he had to do any teaching for the last three or four years. Um, so all of his time was on research. Um, so he has come up with new material, um, new archival uh, uh, archival finds. And, th and that was one of the things we found was just this pattern of, uh, uh, of uh, the representation of uh, nuclear weapons. Um, I've actually slightly forgotten what your question was there now, Aaron. What did you say again? Oh, Tomorrow, well, yeah, so the Tomorrow Never Dies was the Bond film with, um, uh, that was one where they make a joke about uh, the United States losing Vietnam. They say something like, um, uh, you know, if you look, uh, if this, you know, international situation goes wrong, it's going to be another Vietnam and you might, uh, you might actually win this, win, win it this time or something like that. And it's a little, a little wry remark and the, um, uh, and they, uh, the military ensured that it got removed from the script. Oh, well, they took sensitive. it out. They actually took that. They took that's out the one little joke. Yeah, they're so sensitive. They're so petty. That's actually one of the things that's really. Uh, that's one of the things that's really striking about it is is just how thorough they are and how petty they are about anything. Um, yeah, that you know. actually that goes against their. I mean, to be that sensitive, really, that kind of punctures their. I guess fake bubble of machismo. If you can't even take that, like a little British no, guy saying it, was it probably, with a, probably with a like nice little British accent too, and it's like, oh no, don't don't tweak me like that. Yeah, it, another example would be the Iron Man film. I mean, I guess it's a more sensitive subject, but um, the uh, Downey Junior uh, character says something along the lines of um, he makes a joke about. Um, uh, military suicide like oh this is making me want to kill myself or something like that um, and they remove that because because they say well you know we don't want to allude to like the fact that loads of people kill themselves when they come back from a war zone um, and, and that was an un that was an unusual circumstance because it, in on that one um, they hadn't actually sorted it out in advance um, uh, by uh, through memos or um, email or whatever um, so they ended up having a stand-up row between the producers <laughs> Um, and the military uh, on the set just before they were filming it, because um, for some reason they hadn't sorted it, hadn't sorted out. Anyway, eventually they um, uh, they they agreed and they they watered down the line. I don't think they entirely removed it, but they watered it down so it wasn't actually. I think it was like I think in the end he says something like um, instead of saying I'd kill myself to do this or whatever, or I'd, I think he says something like I'd give my I'd give my eye teeth for. <laughs> <laughs> some, yeah. some terrible you can I, I wish i could remember but i can't remember every terrible awful nightmarish film that i've watched over the last 20 years that's got some kind of pathetic military message in it so yeah. forgive me you know the third the third iron man has a weird kind of if if you've seen the third iron man and i'm not i'm not telling you to go out and watch it if you haven't but it, but they have a the plot element is like there's a guy who's like an Iman el zawahiri character yeah. being like a propaganda production himself i thought that was yeah. so odd that they put that in there there were even some right-wingers uh, in the press who tried to denounce the film and said this is like a coded 9-11 truth uh narrative which it actually mm -hmm. sort of was and i to the point that i was surprised that it was in the movie but i if you relegate it to a comic book then i guess maybe the thinking is that like it's so ridiculous that like it's the stuff of comic book stories I, I think probably they were thinking quite comic book along those lines. I seem to remember that's where you think that the villain is a Islamic terrorist, but then he's not because he's got a mask on or some ridiculous thing. Is that right? And I it's seem to remember ben Kingsley, and he's, it's Ben Kingsley, and he's actually like a British actor, stage actor, and it turns out he's been pretending yeah. Bin Laden or Zawahiri or whatever. Yeah, 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 and um, and 
I, I think that was kind of like a, a trope, really, around about that t- same time. Because if you remember the A-Team film, which came out around about the same point, they do the same narrative um, twist um, where someone looks like they're an evil Islamic terrorist, but then they're like, ah, but he's not really. It was something else all along. Um, so I, I think, uh, I don't know if the military would actually have been involved in in, uh, in, in, in scripting that particular aspect. of but it, but it is the case that the, and I should be clear about it, that, uh, and it is uh, set out very clearly in the uh, documentary. It's not just that they occasionally lop out a joke um, or, you know, they say, oh, would you mind removing this line? It doesn't make us look very good. Uh, it's not really that. It, they, they, particularly on television series, they, they determine the, the trajectory of whole character arcs, of whole storylines, the, the whole tenor of, um, of, uh, of a production that may last um, 100 episodes or, or, even many, or even hundreds of episodes is often determined by what that, um, of what that uh, national security organisation wants. Um, I mean, uh, go back to uh, Alias, for example, Jennifer Garner, or go back to 24... Or go to, to Homeland, where we um, where we got um, confirmation just uh, a couple of years ago of um, uh, of CIA involvement in that. Where it was never really very clear if the CIA had actually helped on the production of that, but we eventually got that material. Um, so, so some of that material, some some of those revelations again are um, we didn't have them even uh, even as little time ago as 2017 when Tom and I wrote the book. Uh, and also with Iron Man, again, just going back to that for a second, um, I recently got, must have been two weeks ago now, um, Tom Secker and uh, Tricia Jenkins' uh, book on uh, superheroes and the state came out. And they detail um, over, uh, over several pages um, uh, with new documentation how the Iron Man franchise began life as an anti-war product. Um, yeah. And then it's completely shifted around um, so that it is so that, that that character is representing the uh, the military industrial complex. Um, and it was much more critical of um, uh, uh, of in, of entrenched power um, pr- uh, prior to that. The whole the whole point of that that character was uh, was to oppose the military industrial complex. And actually, it, when the when that film first came out, it there was still some kind of sort of journalist, sort of mainstream journalist who who still sort of saw believed that that it was still an anti-war product but it clearly wasn't um and and if uh, and it's uh, become worse since that but it's become politically more more toxic since then but the whole of the marvel um cinematic universe is just dripping with um uh with the military um and that's what their their new book that just came out um on the 31st of december 2021 um that's what their whole book is about and and i think that is integrated quite well into the documentary so i'm i'm i should i'm very proud of the um 2017 book uh, national security cinema um that i was part of but but there have been um developments um in terms of the actual research um over the past four or five years too yeah there's so the the pentagon typically lends their big that they're expensive toys to this you know production maybe some soldiers also maybe even some explosives who knows the cia thing because we we started to talk about this a little bit earlier then maybe this is a time to, to to look at it again so the the james bond franchise for example that wasn't you, you said that they you didn't really know that there was like cia involvement in it i would say that they didn't need to be because the mentality of the guy was he was a british spy he knew yeah. that 
he knew that what they were doing, Ian Fleming knew that like Bond was not really what it was all about. He understood that. I mean, he was acting as a, as a intelligence person. I think even in the, he was acting as a PR man in a way by putting this stuff out there because the villains are, are cartoonish and they have weird idiosyncratic, unrealistic motives. And the, and the intelligence agencies, the good guys are doing things that are, not what the intelligence agencies do. I mean, they're out there for empire. They're not out there foiling comic book villains, but that's the way the bond thing presents it. So, but then they do get this, then the CIA does get probably more sophisticated and more, uh, the, the spy stuff gets more sophisticated, especially when you have to deal with things that people that are in the public consciousness, like in the 1970s, you know, you have all these disclosures and the CIA is not ever looked at quite the same way again. After that, you know, they're sort of associated with the assassinations of the 60s in people's minds, at least as a suspicion and so on. So when they when Bond gets updated in this new era, I mean, have you seen the 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 second Daniel Craig movie, the one with like Olga Kurilenko, I think she plays a Bolivian and it's all about the privatization of Bolivian water. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that to I me is like, the name of that one now, but yeah, uh, Quantum of Solace. There you go. That that to me is more sophisticated propaganda, you know, than what they were producing before by a big margin. Because instead of a com mm. a cartoon villain for James Bond, it's actually a realistic scenario of like a military mm. coup to privatize water. Except they actually totally reverse it because Bechtel, I believe it was Bechtel, there was a big scandal in Bolivia about them privatizing the water in the country. So if they were going to make it true to life, you would have had James Bond out there you know assassinating the leftist pr person who wants the water to be nationalized so that a corporation could come in and do it but they totally flip it on its head i mean is is mm. is that a, just a bad example or do you think that's the kind of stuff that we're going to get a lot more of or that we have been getting more of uh well no i think i think it's a a, a great example of how toxic that mediated system is and how toxic that entertainment system is whether that is an example of the pentagon actually coming in and rewriting something i think that's probably not the case in this particular one they tend to be more all over that they tend to better drive characters and drive narratives on tv series more than they can films because the, the films already have their scripts in in uh, in place and so then they're going do you, through do you think that do you think that there are people involved in that? That's what I'm getting at here is I don't think that that's the Pentagon. That's too subtle for, I mean, I, okay. Their PR guys are a different breed, I guess, than the dudes who just blow stuff up. But that to me even seems too subtle for the Pentagon as an organization. Like I, I'm wondering if the CIA gets involved in these scripts because they're very deviously they're They basically end up producing things like that. I, when I, as I sit around and, you know, study these things, and I think, like, what would I, what would the CIA do in terms of like wanting to to script these things? I I can't believe that it's so just totally organic that these screenwriters come out with this stuff. And Marvel has similar things, but I'll get into that later. But I mean, do you think that do you think it's possible that they're more involved in the screenwriting, you know, uh, and even pitching movies and pitching plots than we would know? Yes. Um, well, the answer to that is uh, a a fairly emphatic yes um, which is to say that they the CIA and Department of Defense have always said that they uh, th that they are reactive they are waiting for producers to say oh excuse me Mr. Military Person or whoever please can you help us with this film and, and that's because they don't want to look like they are aggressively pursuing 
um, narratives, aggressively pursuing PR um, objectives. But of course they are. And that's one of the things that's come out um, just prior to the release of our book, but also increasingly over the um, uh, over the course of the documentary making, that there are uh, internal documents ex- make it explicitly clear that they are actively going out, say, to Comic-Con and other conferences to promote particular narratives. Now, the CIA, ironically, on this particular one, has actually been, I wouldn't say more open, but... Bearing in mind the Pentagon is very not, you know, is very closed. Um, the the CIA has ha, has had on its website um, these are the films that we think you should make. Um, so it's at least sort of you know there's that little aperture that's been opened up where they've said, oh, why don't you do this? Um, but that's not saying much in terms of their um, uh, uh, their uh, opacity. Uh, they are very opaque um, and. So, for example, Argo from 2012, the Ben Affleck film, um, there was a case where that narrative um, of rescuing um, Western hostages from Iran had been promoted by the CIA and had been mentioned on their website in a kind of, you know, open way, vaguely. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- th- there is a case where, but but what we've found is that, you know, they're, both those organisations are doing that all the time. They are actively pursuing um, uh, p- producers, writers, industry figures, um, to uh, so that they can pr- uh, promote their story, but they don't want that to be known. That's one of the things that they really don't want to be known. Whether that happened in the case of Quantum of Solace, I don't know. But they will have been speaking to um, you know the, the, all of those people are going to be part of the same you know the same the same mix, and so yeah. getting those ideas and, and and there will be political reasons behind them doing certain things like that. Whether that relates specifically to Bolivia or not, I don't know. But um, well, that certainly happened with um, with things like Argo. It certainly happened with. Um, uh, with a lot of the, the TV shows and, and things that they're talking about pitching, if you, uh, if you look at the documentation. And I should say the documentation is available on uh, spyculture.com, which is Tom's uh, website. Um, he puts up pretty much everything there for uh, for, for free and, and, and easy for people to go through if they want to. But there's a lot of an analysis on there as well. Well, yeah, I, I would guess. Now, I, I'm only saying this because I try to put on my, you know, use my sociological imagination or, or put on my spooky guy's hat. But what would stop the CIA from just wanting to have like our man at MGM? You know what I mean? Like have a guy who, who they, who they have either a formal or informal, but established relationship with have people in places there and, yeah, be, okay. able to, and be able to work with writers and such, because some of these scripts, like the, like black Panther, if you saw the Marvel black Panther thing, yeah, it just I totally it, agree. These these things correspond with other kind of cultural manipulations. I think. I mean, the discussion in in race over America is is really, you know, it's infuriating if you're coming at it from a radical, like black, even you know, yeah. black radical tradition experience, like Malcolm X or MLK, especially yeah. at the end of his life. Like that message has been taken away, has been totally pushed to the side, and you have this kind of generic woke anti-racist thing. But that's really just about it's it's often about like symbolically empowering people and it's about the bad problems of, of structural racism or of racism being about bad people and their bad thoughts, you know, and, and it's very individualistic. It doesn't look at systems. And then you get this film like Black Panther that seems to like it's catnip for some of these like liberal and liberal, quote unquote, anti-racist people. 
Um, but like the actual messaging of it, where it's like there's a CIA officer and he's trying to help yeah. a resource rich country uh, in Africa take you know main, become prosperous, you know, and then and then the guy, the good guy, realizes like I need to enter Wakanda needs to enter the world, you know, the globalized world economy to bring us to the 21st century or whatever. It's it, it's so ridiculous. It, it could that had to have had some some help from some nefarious person i mean i don't know what what was your take on that phil um well i i think my take on it is is uh similar to yours i'm very critical of it it reminded me a lot of um avatar as well um as a, as a similar thing uh, avatar 2 i think is coming out at the end of this year um I, I, you know a film that sort of pleases the kind of liberal left if you like um but uh, ultimately is is uh is very establishment friendly. Um, in the case of Avatar, that was one of those examples where, you know, no one thought that the military was involved in the scripting of that. But then on one of the little lists that we had come out in, you know, uh, just a few years ago, you know, we realized that, that it actually had been worked on. Um, and I suspect that they demilitarized that script. Um, you, you notice there's some really clunky dialogue in it that talks about the, um, uh, how the Marines are doing such a good job fighting for freedom back at home um, uh, and that therefore all the baddies, all the uh, American militarized villains in, the, in that film are disassociated from the formal institution um, uh, of the American military. They are mercenaries. Um, so there are some subtle changes to that film like that. Um, uh, Black Panther uh, along, along similar lines, I think, although I, I take the point, I think that the... Um, take the, the the broader point that people make about it being you know I think a lot of people liked it because it was a celebration of of diversity so I can kind of I can see why people like that but I agree with you that the the marketing of that was there's all sorts of things that could have been going on behind the scenes there um, and, I, and I would say I think perhaps one of the points I should emphasize is that when you have that suspicion about what the um, military and perhaps particularly CIA have done I think it's worth bearing in mind that um that every time uh, we have been suspicious as a research group over the past 20 years everyone has uh, the 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 world as a, as a whole has said oh no <laughs> that that's not very likely that can't have happened that you're reaching and actually in this particular instance this particular field every time the more paranoid view has been demonstrably has been demonstrated to be correct through official internal documentation. It's one of the reasons that's kept me really interested in it because, you know, you can imagine if, if all of this had just sort of been a bit of a damp squib and, you know, I'd written a book uh, in 2010 uh, about um, f uh, f films being kind of, you know, na their narratives are kind of supportive of American foreign policy. I'd have left it there. And to be honest with you, I, I, by 2000 and whatever it was, 2014, I was a bit like, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do... A, uh, some other thing, maybe we'll do some more conspiracy writing or journalism or or just focus on teaching or whatever it is. But I decided um to to look into the um look a bit further into the the role of the military and the CIA. And it it, it was completely a, 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 all the information that we had was a, a, a flood of information that went completely against um what the prevailing uh, historiography had been for uh, for the preceding uh, four or five decades. Um, and one of the reasons was, and I, I don't know if you've uh, seen this in our uh, book, it's uh, 
perhaps uh, or in the um, uh, or, or in the documentary. But one of the reasons is because there was really one historian who was blocking all of the material um, because he he had all of the, uh, he had a huge chunk of the documentation that he kept in a private archive in a public library in the middle of Washington D.C. but wouldn't let anyone view it. <laughs> Um, now he was working very closely with senior military officials. But um, so that, that's, and, that I think is important. He seems to have been, in some case, an, an agent of the state. So they're not. Yes. He's an agent of the state. He's in academia. He's supposed to be a disinterested scholar, but really is functioning mm-hmm. as an agent of the state, examining how the state in, intervenes in cultural products like art here, cinema and such. So this is like. This, I think, shows you how nefarious this is. Like, And really, as you say, in almost anything that you can guess that they've done in this field, they you've, you've been able to find a lot of verification that they have done. And that's almost certain that, that there's more out there. With, with the CIA is another uh, good example. But let me come back to the Pentagon in a second as well. So I want to make one other point about that. With the CIA, same thing. Um, if you if you went to the CIA IMDb page from um, a, you know a few years ago, there were like three things on it, and that. But it wasn't until the uh, the uh, the entertainment liaison officer put up his own website um, many years later that he listed his, his actual credits, and there were more like forty or fifty things that he had worked on. Um, and and but none of that had had come out, even though the suppose even though the whole point supposedly of having this office was to be accountable and, and transparent and open and blah blah blah. Um, but it's the same thing. Pentagon is also a good example um, where so so in the early two thousands when I first started looking at that main the historian was saying, well, look, you know, there's maybe. 200, maybe 300 films that have been, effect, uh, you know, in some way affected and they t- all played down and all and very dry. And, you know, uh, you know, maybe a couple of hundred or so films affected over the century. And, you know, that, now we're talking about thousands of the things, literally thousands. Um, it's it's absolutely insane. So it is I, 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 I'm not someone who particularly wants to promote paranoia for, <laughs> for um, you know, as, as an approach to everything. But nevertheless, this has definitely been a, been a field of study where, you know, in the year two, if you'd said in the year 2000, um, you know, the, the military and CIA are controlling TV content, people would have thought that at the very least you are smoking a joint. And and that, that is just but that is exactly what the situation is. The military and CIA control tens of thousands of hours of entertainment, con- have controlled tens of thousands of hours of, of entertainment content. Um, I mean, there are limits to that, There's, uh, and it doesn't mean that they um, dictate scripts, but they do control. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, so series like um, NCIS. For, uh, sorry, I should I should clarify. Tens of thousands of, of, of script. If you also include um, organizations like the FBI, which do a similar thing, um, and controversial police departments like um, New York Police Department and, and Los Angeles Police Department. So uh, the LAPD, for example, they worked, I think it was the LAPD worked on COPS, for example, for about a thousand episodes of COPS. You know, that, that's why that's also kind of pro, uh, pro-police, pro pro-authority. You don't have any, you know, um, dodgy planting of evidence or anything like that. <laughs> um, but it's the same thing with, um, uh, Tom's done films about, about the 
recent uh, police examples as well. But same thing with uh, with the FBI. I mean, you, you've been into um, J. Edgar Hoover what he, and what he was doing. I mean, his involvement in the FBI um, TV series, which was the most popular TV series in America from the late 60s to the mid 70s. You know, that, there was hundreds of episodes of that. And he was all over that. He went down to the uh, studio all the time. You know, throwing his weight around there. Anyone who was gay on set, off they go. Um, any, char- any character who's, um, any of the um, FBI characters who do anything like, um, uh, that is outside of their own job, like have a girlfriend, if there's any evidence of them having a girlfriend in the script, that's got to go. You know, the, and, and really what the Department of Defense and CIA has been doing, at least at points now, and albeit without there being such a, a, a monstrous, um, uh, embodiment of, of of a figure like uh, like J. Edgar Hoover was for the FBI, but what they've been doing has been equally uh, uh, on many different TV series has been equally um, involved. So take NCIS for example. I mean that they're just all over that. I mean there's a good that's a good case of hundreds of episodes that are made there. Um, and and you, I think you've you've just seen it in 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 the documentary. Um, where they they have a sexual assault uh, allegation, for example, and the and the woman who's been sexually assaulted doesn't want to report it, but the military but the military officials are so ca- concerned that they basically go behind her back to ensure that they see justice is done. That is a military that is a military sponsored and pushed through storyline, uh, but that kind of thing happens all the time. Other series like Presido and. Um, uh, lots of other uh, series that we found out. I went to the archive in uh, Washington, D.C. after the book was done. Um, and so that research has fed into that as well. But then Roger followed up and was able to find much more as the archives um, became they became a bit looser with the archives because the, the historian who was you know kind of a culprit in all of this, he, he, he died of old age. So what was that um, guy's what was that guy's name? Lawrence Seward. I mean, he was, yeah. a, you know, it, it was poor practice, really, um, in, in, in many ways. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to be, I don't want to be mean, but it's, it's hard to be particularly, I, I can't think of a great deal of kind things to say about the way that he, he practiced, um, he, he practiced uh, the role of historian. Yeah. You know, I saw this is this gives you an idea of how kind of schizophrenic I was, I guess, for a while. I, I mean, figuratively, like. After um, I read the book, All the Shah's Men, which deals with the overthrow of the CIA's overthrow of Iran, right? It was like the yeah. first one of the first books I'd read on, you know, the clandestine state um, after college. And um, I saw the film and I'd, I'd seen Oliver Stone's JFK. So I, I had a, you know, healthy suspicion of these agencies that was not really consolidated in a coherent critique of like capitalism and security services, yada, yada. So I saw the film in the theater. I went to go and see the recruit. Right. And I actually yeah. left that theater and uh, was talking about this with uh, my girlfriend, who's, who's my wife now. And I said, um, you know, I, I think that this is like the CIA could have been involved in this because like, if you notice, like there was the bad guy and the bad guy was CIA, but then he's like the bad apple. And like the organization is like actually fundamentally good. But I think, and this is this may sound radical, but I don't know that the organization actually is good. <laughs> you know, this was my thinking at the time. Yeah. So, like, yeah. I wonder if, like, they, if, like, these narr- if these stories are written by these people, because the recruit was like that. I mean, the, the recruit was one of those movies that you found to be also, you know, having been manip- manipulated or influenced in some way, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the recruit was. Uh, th- this was uh, research from Trisha Jenkins, who did a book around about the same time as our national security cinema book called CIA in Hollywood, um, and uh, and she, and she is on the documentary as well. Um, and the the recruit she was able to acquire about eighty pages of uh, documentation that showed that the CIA had. Uh, uh, written like a long treatment for the generation of the film, The Recruit. And so that whole narrative, um, that whole storyline was generated by the Central Intelligence Agency. It was effectively ghostwritten by them. Um, so doesn't, and- doesn't that also, doesn't that, if, if that only came out through a flukish, you know, set of circumstances, doesn't that suggest that they probably are much more involved in the writing process? So I, yes. I was- and, and that's, that's why I mentioned um, TV series like um, 24, for example, where we haven't got a great deal of documentation about that, but it is pretty clear from interviews um, from some contextual evidence. Uh, and also say the, um, I mean, I, I, we're getting slightly into speculation here, but my suspicion is that the mission impossible franchise as well, which came out around about the, uh, was rebooted at the same sort of time as the, um, uh, the uh, uh, the CIA developed its entertainment liaison office uh, in the mid nineties. Mission Impossible is based on Robert Mayhew, the the guy in real life, the guy that people, the guy that was the person who approached the mafia on behalf of the CIA to to try to kill Castro. He's the guy that a lot of people blame for the RFK assassination. Basically, they think he was probably the mastermind of the RFK assassination, and he, the CIA would pawn shit off to him. That was like so sinister that they wanted more deniability. So like that's that's what they are. And of course, it's just it's the same. It's similar with Bond. It's like they totally cartoonify it and make it ridiculous when like really it's quite sinister what they do. So, of course, they're going to give, give you another example as well. Um, I, I haven't got this written in front of me, but I think it was in I think it was in 1986. You'd have to check uh, check my book. But um, I think it was in 1986 that the uh that they were tr- that Marlon Brando was trying to make a film about the Iran Contra scandal, um, and they tried to buy a script, but they were outbid constantly by a, 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 an anonymous player. And I think it was Brando who found out later that this was the a CIA front company that had basically stopped them from uh, making it from buying a script by setting up a front company. Oh, uh, they probably they probably bought it with uh they bought it they probably bought the script with cocaine revenue. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and that that only came out I think uh maybe 3 years ago. Um so that was um th- th- there's there's a good example of where things are done in the background. You know, there's no publicity about that. It's not, not, no one even knows about it. Um, and it's, it's similar things about the Iran-Contra um, scandal have been um, suppressed in, in, in other ways. In fact, it's one of those ones where the, um, the, authority, the national security state is really, was really paranoid. They still are now, but, you know, they were particularly paranoid in the 90s. There was a film with, um, that had uh, got Sigourney Weaver um, attached to it called Countermeasures, for example, which was a, about Iran-Contra, but they needed an aircraft carrier and they just immediately said no. So they'd actually got it all greenlit. They'd got a script. You know, and, and, and as you may have seen from the, uh, from the book or the film, you know, there are all, there's this, you know, there's, there's an entertainment graveyard of uh, of scripts that are stacked up in uh, in these um, uh, in these institutions. Uh, in the case of the Navy, we've got the figures on it. They've got two hundred forty thousand pages of material 
um, uh, uh, that they have not yet released, um, uh, um, which is uh, 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 scripts that have been rejected. Um, seems to be largely scripts that have been rejected and the notes upon them. Um, so, you know, and acquiring that through the even through the Freedom of Information Act, which we were very act- we've been very active on, particularly uh, our colleague Tom. Um, you know, how can you do that? It would, you know, it's 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 a it's a gigantic undertaking. But you know, what what's happened um, uh, there? You we, we'll never probably never entirely know. But should you be suspicious about what the what the authorities? Author, oh, I say authorities. Um, you know what these power uh, what these power blocks have have done in terms of curating um, the entertainment landscape. Absolutely. I mean, I I I do think that I I could go on for another you know another ten or twenty years, and I think I'd still be uh, digging. I think I'd still find that there's a, a, a deeper and deeper to dig into it. Um, I think for my own sanity. Uh, it's 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 worth knowing when to to take a break from it because obviously you know i do think that we've kind of we've cracked open the um the uh the egg here um if you uh, forgive the uh the metaphor um i think we have shown that there is this big world here um just by cracking into this um uh, into these into these offices and getting a getting a really good um look around but you could keep you could keep sniffing around it for 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 decades um and i think you'd continue to find richer and richer information um so you know the next stage i, I guess is that um you know roger's going to be leading the creation of a um uh, of a book and um out of this and uh, and tom continues to uh, to work for um I think he's working for RT and other places, and um, so, you know we're we're, we're still doing more on it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there will be more skeletons in the in the closet that can that can, uh, continually could be rattled. Well, what I think is going to be helpful, I think, for people to see this is to educate themselves i mean again it's self-selecting and so it's like it's it can be a little frustrating in that the people who would it would be better for the broader swath of the population to like be aware of this but for people to apply this to things that they see on television anyway anything and i mean i i reflexively do that anything involving the military and the cia i really think about like well what is this actually saying about the institutions and almost always you can kind of guess how you know, generally speaking, they're they're things that they wouldn't mind in there. And even if they're predict, if they're in villainous ways, they're they're depicted either as bad apples, or it's some kind of um, car- um, cartoony or comic book kind of thing that you can't take seriously. And so, in that way, it kind of d- doesn't run really counter to the yeah. mainstream there are some, propaganda. There, there are some, there are some examples there where, um, uh, so so for example. And this is just this is just a question, really, that may be of in, of interest to to you and, and listeners. But in the seventies, the CIA had this um, uh, bad reputation as this sort of dark force. But actually, so take a, a, a really good example of that in film is uh, Three Days of the Condor. But is it that actually it benefited them at least at that time to have this threatening um, aura of some kind because it at least they are looking out for the national interest. Um, and they are the ones who are able to, who, who have that kind of um, uh, sort of uh, that 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 realistic view of what of what society is and what society needs to be. 
Um, so there are elements of that where sometimes maybe maybe the CIA does support certain things, even though you might not expect them to, because it doesn't necessarily go against. It's like a limited hangout, isn't it? Um, yeah, that kind of terminology. Yeah, I think that the director of maybe not Three Days of the Condor, but I think he was the director of the Parallax View, and his name escapes yeah. me. But then he went on to do All the President's Men, which was not very. I mean, that in that movie, the protagonist is a spook, uh, pretty much Bob Woodward. Um, you yeah. know, and yeah. people didn't know that so much at the time, but then it comes out. So it's like that was the that was a weird time period because there was the paranoia, but it was like you could the games were like I mean, even Watergate, for example, is really wheels within wheels and like yeah, president yeah, yeah, Nixon yeah. seems to have been actually crushed by the clandestine, you know, a st- state and with the establishment in some way. And like, that's a mystery people have been trying to unravel for, you know, ever since. When I talked about the, the, the importance of the end of the cold war, uh, meaning that the CIA and department of defense were having a crisis of legitimacy um, or at least that their budgets were going to be looked like they were going to be cut. I think you've you've quite rightly pointed to a couple of other um, instances where that challenge to their legitimacy was very important. Uh, the year of intelligence in 1975 um, uh, was, you know, a really a, a, a key point. I think where they where those organisations realised that they needed to be, you know, just after Vietnam, they needed to be sp- uh, spinning information better than they were. Um, so I, I think it wasn't just you know, the kind of late 80s, early 90s. I think it, 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 those the, the seeds of that concern about the... It's like the Trilateral Commission called it the uh, the crisis of democracy, didn't they? When there's the rise of, um, uh, the rise of, of, of ordinary citizens um, was threatening the legitimacy of, of these organisations. And I think that's why there's been this, this, this continued ramping up um, of, uh, of uh, PR initiatives um, to the extent that you know, really, they are. You know, are these organisations doing it any good at, at all, or is it just pure pure candy floss at, the, at this point? Yeah, I think that that's that's an important question, and um, I will uh, put links in the show notes here, uh, urging people to see the film Theaters of War, read your book National Security Cinema. And also, I'll link to Tom Secker's spyculture.com website, correct? And uh, because, and I know we'll have you on here in the future. I want to talk about uh, the writer with no hands uh, at, you know, in the near future. Absolutely. Like I said, I do hope to have Matthew back on soon to talk about the writer with no hands. Please check out the show notes to see where you can find links to Matthew Alfred's work. That's all for today. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode, Casey Moore for the artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. Keep chasing the light. If you think that it's real, you should know that it's for real. If you think that it's real, you should know that it's for real.